Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon. Plenty to talk about as always. You know, one of the there's a lot going on. You know, my thing is foreign policy. I love foreign policy. I enjoy foreign policy. And I study foreign policy. And I guess I would uh, I, this is what I would say. I study foreign policy. The way I like to put it is maybe not the way it is. The way I like to put it is I like to say I study foreign policy as though I was an alien that had dropped out of the sky onto the earth and that I don't, you know, just see human beings as a bunch of warring tribes, which, in fact, if you were an alien and you jumped uh, out of a ship onto the earth, that's what you'd see, a bunch of very primitive warring tribes. I mean, if you think about it, primitive warring tribes. Look at this. People are like, yeah, I hate the fill in the blank. This group is good. Fill in the blank. What about the Chinese? What about the Russians? Oh, the Saudis, they're up to no good. We like assign literally a, a, a an assignment of good guys or bad guys to entire countries, or we could call them tribes. The Russians are good. The Chinese are bad. The Russians are bad. The Chinese are bad. What about the Mexicans? Oh, the Venezuelans. And then we'll take like one person and we'll assign the personage of one person to an entire group. And what I find interesting is how easy it is to change that. That the government can come up on any given Tuesday and decide, you know, the people in Uruguay are a problem. Why? We just found oil in Uruguay. That's a good reason in the United States. Let's say we find oil, lithium, or something like that. All of a sudden, there's going to be some issues in Uruguay. And all the United States has to do is start the usual campaign. CNN, hey, we've got uh, former CIA analyst Joho Schmittenfield. What do you think, Joho? Well, you know, those people in Uruguay are a real problem. They're up to no good. They're hurting their people. They're run by a dictator. Blibbity, blah, blah, blah. And Americans, and you'll, then you'll start watching the numbers in the American tribe. You, on a little graph, go down, down. What percentage of Americans uh, hate people in Uruguay? 78.1%. Gee, last week it was only 61.1%. We got to do a little more uh, CNN and Fox. Back we go to Joe Ho Schmittenfield, former CIA, uh, whatever, and then he'll do some more. Well, you know, the people of Uruguay, they just, uh, they don't love Jesus. They don't, uh, they don't do anything right. They're evil. They're doing human trafficking. How about that? That'll work. Epstein, a nation full of Epsteins. How terrible are these people? And you watch the numbers start to tick. Hey, we're up to 79.1, 81.1, 82. Let's go. And just as easily, if the United States overthrows the government of Uruguay and gets all the lithium a week later, hey, here's Joe Schmidtville, former CIA, blah, 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 and he'll be on CNN. You know, Uruguay is a great country, and the people there are hardworking, honest people. Gotta love This brings a tear to my eye. I just love them, man. I just love these. And then there go the numbers ticking again. Hey, what percentage of people love the people of Uruguay? Well, it was only 9%, but what do you know? Within a week, it's up to eight point, It's up to 18.9. To sit there and watch that, I think to myself, kind of wish I was an alien dropping off because I could get on a ship and get the hell out of here because these people are nuts, a bunch of warring tribes. And I sit there and I watch it and then I read the news and no, that's never friendly. Now, let me let me do something here because I'm a big foreign policy person. I I would put it like this. One of the things that I would say about myself is I'm an anti-imperialist. What I mean, empire. The U.S. is an empire, not a country. It's an empire. And we are at the point where an empire falls apart, clearly to me. And what usually happens with empires when they fall apart is... They get so big and they start reaching out all over the place and it gets too expensive. It's so expensive to have bases. We got 800 bases around the world. That's expensive. And what's happening is this. We have so much trouble supporting this gigantic lumbering military with 800 and some bases around the world, challenging everybody. We got to challenge Russia. We got to challenge Iran. We got to challenge North Korea. We got to cha- challenge everybody. We have to run the world. And it is now becoming so expensive to run the world, as it were, a world that doesn't want to be run by us, that home is falling apart. Our infrastructure is falling apart. People at home are starting to ask questions. Why are we spending all this money overseas and nothing for us? 
And, and, and our country is starting to fall apart, as all empires do. And people are starting to notice the contradictions of empire. And I'm going to point out right now some glaringly obvious contradictions. Glaringly. All right. And I'm going to end up in Africa. So this is an article. It's about a year old. And as you know, the U.S. now, China's the big enemy. Oh, Russian China's the big enemy, right? Russia's evil. China's evil. You know the game, right? So near China, in the Pacific, there is a chain of islands, strategically important, I guess, if you're a warrior kind of person, called the Solomon Islands, right? And China has good relations with the China with, with the Solomon Islands, and they are, have a, they're building a base there that they can put, bring ships to, and it's a potential naval base, right? But it's about 7,300 miles from the United States. 7,300 miles. It's near China. It ain't near us. Let me read an article from Reuters, from The Guardian. One of the most senior U.S. officials in the Pacific has refused to rule out military action against Solomon Islands. Now, it's a small chain of islands. The United States refuses to rule out military action, literally attacking the Solomon Islands, right? One of the most senior U.S. officials in the Pacific has refused to rule out military action against Solomon Islands if it were to allow China to establish a military base there, saying that the security deal between the countries presented quote, potential regional security implications, unquote, for the U.S. and other allies. So what the United States said is the Solomon Islands, a small group of islands off the coast of China, the U.S. says if they allow a base on China, we might attack them. That's gangsterism. If you do something that we don't like, we'll kill you. That's, isn't, that, isn't that what the mafia does? If you do what we don't like, we'll kill you. So the U.S. says, look, if you um, allow China to have a base, you're off the coast of China. You ain't off the coast of us. But if you allow China to have a base, we'll kill you. Simple as that, we'll kill you. This is the U.S. that says to, that's got so many people here convinced, yes, we're the good guys. Oh, we're great. Oh, look at that other country. They're doing something mean. Meanwhile, our leaders are going to a little old Solomon's, uh, Solomon Islands, a small chain that doesn't even have a military. They don't have an army. They don't have a navy. They're just a bunch of people on islands. And what does the U.S. say? If you allow China to have a base, we'll kill you. Now, if they were to say, but we're right off the coast of China, that's irrelevant. We're the United States. Every we own it all. So the United States tells Solomon, "Hey, look, man, you, you try to get a Chinese base, we'll kill you, dead. You're done." Now, uh, I got another article here that you may find interesting. Chinese naval base in Africa a threat. The U.S. Africa Command General Michael Langley, who is of African descent, has said that the U.S. listen to this can't let China open a naval base in Western Africa. The general did not public stately state where such a base might be located, but said that it would place China at an advantage over the U.S. Speaking at a hearing of the Senate Armed Services Committee on Thursday, Langley said that he would not discuss the details of China's plans. He stated that a Chinese naval base on the Atlantic coast of Africa would change the whole calculus of protecting the U.S. homeland. Now, let's put those two stories together. And let's work on that just a little bit. The Solomon Islands is off the coast of China. And the U.S. says, if the Solomon Islands allows China to build a base off the coast of China, we'll kill you. Dead. We will bomb you. We will murder you. Your life will be over. That's what they mean when they say we will not rule out military action, right? Imagine a mafia guy shows up to your door and says, look, man, you got to give us uh, $100 a month. What happens? We won't rule out that your house will be burned down. You know what's going to happen if you don't give them the money, your house is going to be burned down. And if, or if the mafia guy says, well, you know, it's a dangerous world out here. Just all kind of terrible things can happen. Your legs are going to get broke. When the mafia shows up and gives you a piece of advice, well, we're not going to rule out doing something if you don't do what we want. That means if you don't do what they want, the first time you get your legs broke, the second time you get three bullets in the back of the head. That's what it means. The United States being a mafia state that we are, we dispense with the leg-breaking part and simply say, Solomon Islands, you're a tiny little group of islands. You have no way of defending yourself. Why, you're a peaceful people on the islands. You collect shells, you work, you fish. Just a peaceful group of brown people on an island. Do what we want or we'll kill every one of you. 
That's the United States. That's the good guys. That's who this particular warring tribe is. We're great. We're bringing democracy and independence around the world. But we sure ain't bring it to the Solomon's Island, are we? Because if they try to exercise independence and sovereignty, they're dead men. Now, General Michael Langley says we can't let China open a naval base in Western Africa. Might I say this? I didn't know we owned Western Africa. Equatorial Guinea, per se. That's in Western Africa. So what we're saying is we can't let Africa have... And Africa's a continent. It ain't a country. So we're saying Western Africa. We're not saying any country. We're saying every country in Western Africa. We will not let China have a base in there, which implies that we own Western Africa, kind of like slaves. You see, my friend, Michael Langley is the black man in charge of AFRICOM, the U.S.'s Africa Command, all the bases and soldiers and stuff we got in Africa. They put a black man named Michael Langley in charge. And what is old Michael Langley's job to do? To go to the Africans and say, and I hate to put it this way, but I've seen enough slave movies. Oh, Mazdan said you can't have a base there, sir. That's what old Mazdan told me to do. That's what Michael Langley's job is. And that's what he does. He goes to black folks that look like him. Because, you know, maybe it may look bad if they send a white guy to Africa. And he's like, hey, Africans, yeah, you guys can't have a base. And they're like, but, but we're in independent sovereign countries and we can do whatever we want. No, you can't. Negroes, you can't have a base. Well, that wouldn't look good. Right? It would kind of look racist if you think about it. So they get a black man to shuffle on over to Africa because we got to respect him. He's the first black general to whip the Negroes. And he goes there and he says, he says what? He says, the same thing that white guy was going to say. Hey, I'm here to speak for Joe Biden. First of all, if you're in Africa and somebody comes to say that to you, you ain't going to like the next part of the thing that they say. And then he gets there and he says, ah. We can't let China build a base in your country. And you say, what do you mean, let and in my country? It's my country. Well, it appears to be your country. On the surface, it may even seem like your country. But if China tries to build a base, we'll kill you. Every last one of you will kill you. So no, you can't have a base. Yes, sorry. That's the good guys. That's the U.S. That's the country that's doing the good stuff. When it comes to Africa, if they try to build it... If it's their country, if you believe in independence and sovereignty, right? Remember this, Ukraine, independence and sovereignty. We stand for independence and sovereignty. People can't tell other countries what to do. They have a right to do whatever they want, unless you're in Africa or maybe the Solomon Islands. And then if you try to do what you want, we'll kill you. And now on Arts Express... Welcome to the Silver Age of Radio. We're sorry to say we've reached the end of our run of Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, Zazu Pitts, and Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., after airing a grand total of 32,647 episodes. But have no fear, we've dug down deep into our dusty archives and have come up with episode two of the Jack and Rick Bob and Ray homage, first broadcast way back on April 19th, 2023 on the Arts Express Radio Network. So without much more ado, it's Jack and Rick. And now, from approximately coast to coast, it's Jack and Rick bringing you all the news you need in today's crowded information landscape. Well, Rick, what's on board for today? Well, Jack, here on the Jack and Rick Show, we like to highlight up-and-coming emerging entrepreneurs. Ah, those people with the heart, sweat, and ingenuity that make America great. So let's welcome today's guest in the studio, Mrs. Hannah R. Worthington. Hello. It's so nice to be here. 
You're the creator of the world's largest slice of French toast. That's correct. And just how big is that slice of French toast, Mrs. Worthington? Oh, it's quite big. We had to knock down the kitchen door frame to get it out of the kitchen. Fortunately, we had the help of the Buffalo Bills football team backbench, and they did a marvelous job of transporting it to the eating area. As I understand it, you own a restaurant. That's correct. Toast and things. Just off I-95, a little past Darrell's Dinosaur Village. I understand your father was a restaurateur. He was the founder of the International House of Pancakes. Uh, well, no. Uh, Daddy was the founder of the International House of Pancake, not Pancakes. See, it didn't last very long as he only had one pancake. So there really wasn't enough food for the customers. I imagine that would be a problem. Yes, it, it did break Taddy's heart, but I promised him I'd follow him into the restaurant business. I didn't want to repeat his mistakes, so I switched to French toast. And people seem to like this giant-sized French toast? Well, I figure, give the people what they want. They seem to like Big Macs and Whoppers and supersized Cokes, so why not serve them the world's largest slice of French toast? Indeed, why not? And we're so very proud of our Happy Meal, which is an order of the world's largest slice of French toast and a side of water. That's a big seller, is it? Well, it's, it's been a bit of a problem. We don't have large enough tables for the toast, so we ask our customers to get down on all fours and we lay the toast on their backs. That can't be very comfortable for them. Well, they don't seem to mind that very much. It's kind of a family thing. And we throw a drop cloth over their heads to stop them from being splashed by the buckets of maple syrup. Do you serve anything else at your restaurant? Uh, no, just French toast. We do what we know. And any plans for expansion? Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, we're working on our eagerly awaited second slice of French toast. Our staff says it should be completed in winter of 2024, so we're very excited. Well, we're certainly looking forward to that. Thank you, emerging entrepreneur, Hannah R. Worthington. Well, Rick, that was certainly a heartwarming segment highlighting our innovative business community. And speaking of which, now a word from our sponsor. Friends, when you're in the market for nonspecific meats, come to Meat City, where they don't bow down to limiting labels. They guarantee no meat they sell can be conclusively identified. Pigs, chickens, frogs, it's all one and the same to the folks at Meat City. Whether it's the 50-pound bag of meat or the assorted vital organs pack, you can always be sure you don't know what you're getting. And don't forget to ask for their Agatha Christie-themed mystery meat party platter. That's Meat City for all your non-specific meat needs. That music lets us know that it's time for the Jack and Rick Book Corner. Well, we're happy to welcome to the Jack and Rick Book Corner the author of Be Happy No Matter What, Mr. Frederick J. Nicey Nice. Uh, that's pronounced Nisi Nisi. Oh, excuse me. It'd be pretty ridiculous if my name were pronounced Nicey Nice. Yes, that would be somewhat humorous, wouldn't it? <laughs> That's all right. I, I get that a lot. You know, I'm wondering if you get that a lot. I get that a lot. It must be annoying to you, or it must annoy you, uh, or it must be annoying to you. I mean, you being the author of a book titled Be Happy No Matter What. Well, no, I, I've actually learned to control myself and just brush it off. Using a few of the techniques I've outlined in my book, be happy no matter what. 
Uh, I'd like to ask you, are there uh, any specific techniques that you outline in your book? Here's one that I use often. Suppose you're talking to someone and you find them very, very annoying. Are there uh, any techniques that you outline in your book? Rather than lashing out and turning over their table, covered with microphones and jujubes, you can just close your eyes for a moment and say to yourself over and over, everything's just fine and dandy. Everything's just fine and dandy. Yes, everything's just fine and dandy. That's what I do when I feel myself starting to get upset. Well, I was wondering uh, if you could let the listeners at home know what they might do if they start feeling themselves starting to get upset. Everything's fine and dandy. Everything's fine and dandy. Everything's fine and dandy. Some kind of phrase, perhaps, that they could say to themselves. Everything's fine and dandy. Everything is fine and dandy. Let's not get loud about it. Maybe there's a phrase you could say that might calm you down. I'm saying the phrase. Everything's fine and dandy. No need to get nasty about it. For a fellow who's written a book, be happy no matter what. I don't think... Well, Jack, I don't think we'll be having Mr. Nisi Nisi back to the studio anytime soon. Would you like a purple jujube? Yes, that would be the perfect snack while we're listening to this week's dramatic presentation, Wilbur Strawberry, Boy Golf Caddy Detective. But first, this important Jack and Rick public service announcement... Financiers, do you have your deposits tied up in SVB or Signature Bank? Are you still waiting for your bailout? Well, wait no more. Jack and Rick are offering an alternative investment instrument. Put your money into something tangible and recognized worldwide. Each of our handcrafted Jack and Rick snowballs will withstand temperatures of up to 32 degrees Fahrenheit, 0 degrees centigrade. Get your Jack and Rick snowballs today. This is not a prospectus or offer of snowballs, which can only be made through a licensed authorized snowball agent and is not FDIC insured. And now, Wilbur Strawberry, Boy Golf Caddy Detective. Mr. Goodwin, you certainly smacked that ball off the tee. That reminds me of the case of the tippling tee, when every hole you played had a tee lying on its side. The less talk and more caddying. Right you are, Mr. Goodwin. That was a tough case. It even stumped my father, Campbell Strawberry, world-famous detective on the Upsala County Auxiliary Police Force. As I remember it, you figured out that you yourself had knocked over each of the tees when you were carelessly swinging the golf bags about. That's true, Mr. Godwin. But you have to admit it was a real stumper. Just like the puzzle of the gaseous golf cart. Everywhere you went, the cart spewed out fumes, and it was supposed to be electric. That was a real head-scratcher and a stinker of a case. Yes, it would have been had you not eventually realized that instead of renting an electric golf cart, you actually had me riding on a reconditioned gas lawnmower. Now, hand me my number two iron. Yes, sirree, Mr. Godwin, but I can't help thinking about the mystery of the sputtering putter. Every time you went to putt, the putter seemed to be covered in a mysterious, glowing fluid. That was certainly a challenging brain teaser. (laughs) 
not for very long, as I recall. You finally remembered you had been carrying your tuna salad lunch sandwich in my golf bag. Well, you got me there, Mr. Godwin. But it sure seems like this golf course is jinxed. There is a mystery every minute here. A jumping Jiminy, Mr. Godwin. Look there on the fairway behind us. It's an ice cream popsicle stick right near the number six hole. I wonder where it came from. It's the riddle of the polluting pop stick. Looks like it's another case for... Wilbur Strawberry, boy golf caddy detective. Now what did I do with that good humor ice cream bar I had? Well, Rick, that's uh, all the time we have for today. And this is Jack and Rick saying this is Jack and Rick. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed is king. And you've been listening to Jack and Rick, episode number two, which is another of our Bob and Ray-like tribute segments, especially written for Arts Express by myself. It featured Rick Tooman all the way from Dallas, Texas, and your correspondent. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And coming up next on the show, taking up the complicated issues of race in this country as no laughing matter is stand-up comedian and filmmaker W. Kamal Bell with his documentary, 1,000% of Me Growing Up Mixed, following his Emmy-nominated We Need to Talk About Cosby and United Shades of America. Hello. Hello, Kamal, and welcome. Thanks for having me. How do you see your documentary and the idea for this documentary as uplifting for those of mixed identity out there, and on the other hand, for you in your own life personally? I mean, I, you know, I, I hope it adds to the conversation. I feel like since I've been working on this film, it's become very clear to me that, like, there's not a lot of spaces in our culture and mainstream culture to talk about uh, mixed, mixed people or their experience or for them to feel comfortable to talk about their experience. And I think by focusing on kids, including my own kids, who don't know that there's not space for them to talk, they just take up the space that they feel like they want to take up. It hopefully can help... Uh, mixed-race people of all ages take up more space to talk about their experience and encourage them, and also maybe give people outside of this discussion, people who are not mixed or are not parents of mixed-race kids, understand that this country is is often uh, overinflates, the, like says that like we can't talk to kids about race and racism, it's too much for them to handle, and yet you have an hour of this film of kids talking about race and racism and, not, and showing you that it's not too much to handle. And what can you say about your life choice and mission of a comedian as a mission to heal a broken world with humor? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm laughing because I was like, was that my choice? Um, <laughs> I mean, I just wanted to be a comedian because I, I thought I was funny and I was an only child. And I watched Saturday Night Live and, and I've talked about other people I was inspired by and done work about that. So... I just wanted to be a comedian because I thought it was a it looked like a fun job, and I think then the deeper you get into any job, you figure out, wait, what is my purpose here? What is my point here? And I think I realized, oh, I have something to say because I think my parents made me have something to say. <laughs> they were, they were, you know, I've always talked about the the conversation about race and racism in America was it was in a continual conversation in my house growing up. So. I think it was natural that as I got older and started to care about the world more and had kids, I started to wanting to engage in, in that conversation. And then I think it was important to me to try to have that conversation in a way that felt like it was additive and not taking away. And also that was making it easier for other people to understand. And would you say that in your exploration of the issue of mixed race, that those who are mixed as people of color have an easier time of acceptance than those who are part white? because the white world is less accepting and tends to view everyone else, no matter how mixed, as generic people of color. 
You know, I think it, the thing that one thing that was important about the film was to try to get as many different experiences in there and as many different versions of mixed in there. I think a lot of times when we say mixed, we think black and white as the mix, and I think those are my kids' mixes, but that is not, you know, that, that is most of the kids in the film are not that, and we have some adults in there too. I think what's clear is that a lot of this is depends on where you grew up in America and what and what your parents what your parents' experience of talking about race and racism was before they had you. So. I think it could be that if you have white parents who, who you know, who had engaged in discussions of race and racism in their lives and learned to empathize, empathize with the black community and understood white supremacy and structural racism, you could be a white kid who, who is, to use a very loaded word, who's woke. But if you're a, if you're a mixed race kid growing up in a community where you're the only mixed race kid and nobody wants to talk about your identity or, or people don't want to hear about you or talk, speak to your identity or quote unquote complain about your experience, then you're going to grow up sort of messed up and you're not going to have, you're not going to have access to the conversation or access to the resources. So I think a lot of this is really depends on where you were grown where you grew up in the country. And I think if we, we shot the film in the Bay area, kids out there have a lot more access to this conversation. And I think that's why we wanted to just focus on the Bay area. But I think we could make films every year about different parts of the country and mixed race experience and find that every, everywhere you go, the experience is going to be very different. Oh, and are you planning to do that? I mean, it's, you know, it's from, from your lips to HBO's ears, <laughs> I guess you say. And how do you see your film in the larger context of African Americans in this country as mostly mixed race themselves, especially more spoken about with the advent of DNA tests? Well, you know, as, as, as we actually had a kid in the film at one point say that she's like, she's like talked about the idea of race as a social construct that her, she had learned from her mom that race was a social construct. And, I, you know, that's certainly something that I believe and understand that, that this race is not real science. It is not a real thing. It is a, it is a social construct, but we have invested so much into it that you have to deal with the reality of race, even though the, even though race is, is, is a movable thing that ha that changes based on who's in charge and what they want to get away with. So, for example, we we call my kids like mixed race. My kids might say they're half black and half white, but I've had my DNA test. I'm only 72% black. So that makes my kids like what 36% black, you know, like so, you know, but that doesn't mean that they're not by the nature of the social construct of race half black. So, I think that we have to understand that these concepts are always the, the line is moving and changing, and as we talked to an elder Roy in the film, that when he was a kid, even though he had a white mom and a black dad, nobody thought of him as mixed, because if you were black at all, you were just black. So I, I understand that in my kid's lifetime, we're saying mixed now is the, is the identifier. That identifier is most likely to change in their lifetime, because they're going to figure out something that makes them feel more identified or more supported. And what can you say about some of your other activities as the ACLU Celebrity Ambassador for Racial Justice. I can say that they apparently couldn't find a more famous black person to be the Celebrity Ambassador <laughs> for Racial Justice. Uh, you know, I love my work with the ACLU. I, I'm, you know, I, do, I try to do whatever they ask me to do. Uh, I think that their work is important and necessary right now. More, I don't wanna say maybe more necessary than ever because it's always necessary. And, I, they find that my work aligns really well with them. So, I, you know, even if I'm at the early stages of working on things, I will reach out to them and say, is there something, is there something you have here, or information you have? Just as like, a, like a, a, a resource for information. I'm a big person who likes to gather. I'm a, I'm a big gatherer of information. So, And then, like with this film, they're one of the partner organizations that we're going to help, uh, that's going to help us promote the film because they feel like this aligns with their work. So I just, you know, it's... Uh, Right now, with the way this country is, we all need to get a bucket and help bail this thing, help, and help bail out the ship. And yeah. the ACLU hands me, we have similar buckets, so we like to work together. And what about what you're up to on the advisory board of Right to Be? Right to Be is, a, is, a, is an organization that is really like just, it's an anti, it started out as anti-street harassment, but now it's like anti-all harassment. So the, again, these are organizations that like I didn't approach to be a part of, but they saw the work I was doing in the world and felt like that my work aligned well with them. Uh, and so I started working with them, you know, 10 years ago. And it's really, again, an organization I've learned a lot from and so much so that like when me and my uh, co-author Kate Schatz did our book, uh, Do the Work, an anti-racism activity book, you know, we were talking about ways in which we can create a less racist world. We use techniques from right to be 
talk about how to disrupt uh, how to disrupt racism in the world. They have a thing called the five D's, and so it's it's really like, you know, I like to be surrounded by smart people, and I like to be specifically surrounded by people who are smart in areas that I'm not as smart in. And right to be as as a group as one of those people, those organizations. And in terms of your subjects looking in the mirror for their identity, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? You know, I, I sort of knew growing up that my, you know, that my identity was politicized. So I always say that, like, if I close my eyes, I'm an only child. That's the way I would identify myself, because that's the thing I feel that, that most identify, that, that sort of most explains the world to me, the way I sort of process the world is through the lens of an only child. But if I open my eyes and see and see my image and see the way people look at me, then I would say I'm a I'm a black male, and that's for me that's one word. It's not it's not it's not black and male. It is a black male, black man. Uh, and I know that like I can't really. This is where Kimberly Crenshaw's idea of intersectionality comes in. I can't separate those two when I'm out in the world because it's the unity of those two that sort of defines how the world treats me. And your film presents a positive portrayal of mixed identity. But what about in the larger reality of the continuing racism and police violence and murders and the mass incarceration of predominantly people of color? For me, this is like, you know, I think about like, not that I'm comparing myself, but like Bob Marley had a lot of songs about the revolution and some of the songs were dance songs and some of the songs were screeds. (laughs) And so I've done a lot of work in my life, especially with United States of America. I just my film, We Need to Talk About Cosby, my docuseries, that is really more directed to the root causes and really more more hitting these things at an adult level. With this film specifically, we built it on kids, and I wanted to make something that, at the, that kids and families could sit down and watch together. And so that it was not something that was aimed as much as a, at adults as the rest of my work is. I want my kids to be able to sit down and watch this with me and start conversations about their experience or conversations with their friends. And I want families all over the country whether they have mixed race kids or not, to sit down and watch this film, because I think there's a lot to be, a lot of conversation starters in this film. So for me, it just feels like if you want to hear the more uh, punk rock edge racism stuff, I have that. <laughs> this is my, this is more of a, uh, this is more of the kids edition of the of W. Kamau Bell's work. And right now at a time where states like, I don't want to say Florida, but I'll say Florida, are saying that like kids can't handle discussions of race and racism, we have this beautiful little film that proves that they can. Okay, thank you, W. Kamau Bell, for joining us on the show. Thank you. Bye. And 1,000% of Me Growing Up Mixed premieres May 2nd on HBO. And we'll go out now with the Arts Express hot seat and an enduring question when it comes to art and politics. Can they at times be viewed as separate entities, if ever? Our Arts Express artist-in-residence, Peter Wise, explores these issues with French-Tunisian, Iowa-based artist Cécile Huel, commissioned to paint a continuous series of Nobel Peace Prize recipient portraits. But what about the controversy concerning awarding war criminals like Kissinger and Obama, who was the president who most bombed the world? And as they discuss her controversial as well, most recent portrait, Theodore Roosevelt. So, Cecile, did you want to say something about yourself? Peter, thank you for suggesting this uh, interview. It's wonderful. So I'm coming from um, a French father and a Tunisian, Tunisian mother. and uh, But it's been about 15 years now that I am in the United States. I'm um, American now, proud American. And uh, so I'm an artist uh, living in Burlington, Iowa, and uh, being very privileged to have a space where I can produce uh, different sizes of artwork. Now focusing more on my Nobel Peace Prize collection. It's a collection of, uh, uh, so far, 22 uh, figures that received a Nobel Prize, plus all the preliminary studies that I do uh, in charcoal or pastel. So... 22 out of how many? 171 Nobel Prize winners for humanities? Clo- uh, close to it, yes. Uh, I think it's 150 plus. So <laughs> it's, uh, it, I still have a lot of work to do ahead of me. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so my first question actually uh, really relates to that. Um, I picked Theodore Roosevelt, 
for the first subject because a lot of people don't know that he had won the Nobel Peace Prize, and he had brokered the uh, uh, the peace agreement between the Russians and the Japanese in 1906. Now, my question is, why you don't get to pick the Nobel Peace Prizes, and uh, aren't 200 years old, so you probably never would have had any input, but you do uh, choose from 170 of them, so why... I, I thought Theodore Roosevelt was a really provocative choice. Can you explain your choice, given his um, his uh, military stance, so to speak? He was a bit of a warmonger. He had invaded Cuba with the United States. Uh, were you aware of these things when you painted them? Or? Certainly. In fact, when I choose a figure, uh, I always go through his biography and uh, make some studies, researches, uh, before I decide to go ahead and do the painting. But uh, since I don't stand uh, in a political, uh, I don't see things politically, uh, I'm fully aware of the controversy uh, that they represent. I, I'm just considering myself more a witness of how history unfolds, and so I'm not going to judge um, any figures. They are Nobel Prize awardees, so they received it for a specific reason, which you named just before for Theodore Roosevelt. What I was uh, looking for when I choose him, it's, I choose kind of randomly, but I was looking specifically for um, a very iconic American figure, which I thought Theodore Roosevelt was. <laughs> Uh, yes, it's true that um, I could say, well, you know, it's not the best piece, a symbol uh, of all figures. Some are much more easy to pick up from. But uh, he still accomplished so much, not only for peace, but even for the lands here. You, you know, he was um, the origin of uh, the, um, uh, the big... Um, parks, uh, national parks uh, uh -huh. in, in uh, the United States. Uh, mm. And then, so it's easy at a point to find the very likable sides of the person. Uh, and I don't, again, I don't judge. Uh, I just, I'm interested by, the, by history and where the figures stand in that history. Can, um can I just get past that and ask you about the inclusion of animals on that canvas? There's a, a lion. I will take a picture of this. There's puffins and there's a lion. Neither, uh, neither of them are uh, indigenous to America. And given his um, track record as slaughtering 10,000 major animals in Africa on one of his safaris, as a vegetarian, how do you feel about that? Was, did that give you qualms to picture them? Or what is, the, what is the point of the inclusion of animals? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I actually was not vegetarian at the time I painted this painting. Uh, so I didn't stand on that side when I, uh, when, when I started it. But the reason of the presence of a lion and puffins is because we know through his biography how he was an extraordinary explorer, actually motivated, yes, by hunt, because he was a hunter, uh, so he was always um, going for this trophy that he could bring back. And again, I don't put myself into a judging point. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, part of his, uh, his history. Uh, he, the puffins is because he was a taxidermist and he did uh, stuff a puffin that is now, I don't remember which uh, museum, I think it's a museum in Washington. Mm -hmm. So there is one of his puffins, let's say, ah, uh, in a museum. And so it's that. a little hint uh, of uh, something he did. We're, I think, as human beings, all complex. We're not all white or black. Uh, you know, we have sites that fits our education, you know, when you are um, growing into a hunting, a family of hunters, you might be influenced by it or, or so. And I don't advocate, of course, for that. I'm against, I'm vegetarian. I really, every life is absolutely sacred. So, uh, but um, it's part of who he is, mm -hmm. and so it's on the canvas because of that. 
I was more interested by the narrative of it's it uh, of uh, the major accomplishments. Let's say that he did. Uh, I didn't. I don't put myself into darker spaces, although they are there, of mm. course. Uh, so that I paint with a kind of a light heart. Okay, well, let's move on. Um, mm -hmm. Let's see. I asked, uh, would you have painted Lenin or Trotsky, both of who brought the Russian participation in World War One to an end, if the Nobel Prize had been given to them? for signing the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in 1918. In other words, they ended the Tsarist war and saved millions of Russian lives. Yes. Um, so this is not a political, uh, politically motivated process for me, again. Mm -hmm. uh, although it's always in the background. Uh, mm -hmm. So yes, and it's like a lawyer, for example. You ask ah, a lawyer, hey, very you good. know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, 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 would you defend this criminal? Uh, it's my job to do it, you know. Here, it's my job to, like, just tell the story of those amazing persons that at the point of their life, and it might not be always, they might have done uh, something opposite to it before, uh, accomplished something big enough that they were nominated by a number of persons and then that the Nobel Society would think it's enough to give them this huge award that is recognized worldly. Yes, and indeed. Uh, uh, the president of Eritrea, who's a total dictator, was given the Nobel Prize, um, I don't know, not too many years ago, mm -hmm. and uh, he's still a dictator. So uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a thought process which I wouldn't want to engage in, and I don't think you want to engage in. You're, you're given what you're given. Exactly. I'm, I'm trying to stay, and I'm doing it. In fact, I'm not trying. I'm staying into a very neutral zone where I'm more interested by why they were uh, awarded it than all their previous uh, background or what they have done afters, after. There is one figure that, um, and I won't name this figure right now, that I have a little bit of difficulty. I, try, I, I started to do um, preliminary sketches and I said, well, I don't feel it. So I'm going to wait until I can feel it uh, being a little more neutral. I try to stand where my judgment doesn't affect um, the way I paint it. Okay, well, it's very interesting. Um, getting into the painting and process of your painting, uh, they're very large paintings. They demand a lot of energy by the, the, the looks of them. I mean, they are, what, four feet by four feet, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, do you, you're, they're life-size. It, it's almost as if you're in, are you interviewing that person as you paint? Are you uh, interacting with them? Are, are, is this a voyage of discovery for you, but your feelings for that subject? Yeah, that, I, th I think it's a very well, uh, very well uh, thought out, what you're saying. Uh, they are um, voluntarily uh, life-size. Uh, so and I have decided to put them all at the same level so that when I have a you know a show a large show when they're all together they're all facing us so there is two processes and uh, two ideas with that the first one and obviously when I paint them I do have their at the point their eyes facing me mm -hmm. uh, and the idea is to reflect their actions towards peace I'm going to find it back to me, uh, feeling it back to me, and I will reflect on myself and say, what can I do better every day in my life uh, to act towards peace in a world that is somehow tormented. Uh, so yes, there is an interesting interaction between a 2D on canvas person that is very present because they are very realistic and then how I can, I can feel and reflect uh, on myself and to try to uh, really celebrate uh, all of that instead of putting myself in a place of judgment again. Okay, um, that's the height of non-judgmentalness, I guess. Now, do you have any exhibitions coming up? Uh, so right now I am in the process uh, of having a Nobel Prize collection exhibition uh, hopefully but uh, the contacts are kind of slow right now with the World Food Prize Foundation which is in uh, Des Moines 
uh, ah, Iowa. Pretty close. Uh, so it's uh, been a slow process since the pandemic. We've, we've been talking back and forth. Uh, so, but other than that, for now, the collection is at my studio. Um, you know, I have a, a, a beautiful space in Burlington, Iowa. And I am in contact with a few organizations. I would like to have a big show with, let's say, most of them on the wall. And so it always takes time to organize um, an exhibition with paintings of this size. And you need an enormous space. Yes, exactly. If you Open it. always to, you know, some uh, solicitations. Uh, so uh, that is mainly to create peace events. So uh, uh, above just, you know, the, the painting themselves, uh, it's the message that they carry that interests me the most. How can people see your work? You have a website, correct? So I have a website, I have a presence on Facebook, which is pretty, um, pretty active. But yeah, and my website is not also very active, let's say. But it gives an idea of the collection. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, uh, for now, 21 of them, uh, the Nobel Prize portraits on uh, my website. And uh, as soon as there is a new one, uh, the new one is, is, is uh, I'm going to put it up uh, with my daughter taking care of my website uh, uh, very soon. Uh, so, yeah. Can you, can you give your web address? Because uh, people might not be... Uh... Yes, so it's a CecileWell.com. Okay, and that's H O. So H O U E L. H O U E L, yes. And pronounced well. Yes. Yes, okay. <laughs> we, we don't want to damage the French language, that's for <laughs> sure. Okay, I'm going to wrap up now. Um, you've been listening to Cecile Well and telling us how she works and why she works and it's always fascinating i think to listen to an artist so thank you cecile thank you so much peter it was You're a, welcome. a great pleasure and that's all we have time for today on arts express expression in the arts and if you'd like to express yourself too you can write to us at the radio goddess at gmail.com until next time this is prairie miller leaving the station